Hello and welcome to Small Screen Science, the brand new podcast where we take a look at some of the science behind our favourite TV shows. I'm Karen Collins, I'm a science teacher, an educational consultant and a science communicator. And I'm Emma Brisson, a communication specialist, a podcaster and a science communicator. Now, this week's episode is called Soggy Bottom Science because we are going to be looking at the Great British Bake Off. We're going to be talking about the science behind baking getting food right and why we enjoy it so damn much. Yes, absolutely. And each week we're going to try and sneak in some catchphrases or some terms relating to these TV shows for you to try and spot. Now, because we're starting with Bake Off, we thought it was only right to start off with some uh, some baking puns and some Bake Off innuendos. Absolutely. So see how many we can fold into the episode um. and we'll give you a full list at the end. <laughs> and there's the example of the first one there, folks, <laughs> if you were looking out for it. Because after all, it is compulsory and we're going to throw in definitely some Bake Off innuendo because you can't do Bake Off without the innuendo. Absolutely. And also because it is our first episode and we're going to be talking to an expert about why we enjoy chocolate, there's a small chance... There's a big chance. We've definitely <laughs> bought ourselves some bars of chocolate to enjoy later, but it's all in the name of science. We've got an experiment lined up. Yeah, because after all, who needs an excuse to buy chocolate? <laughs> okay, well, well, let's get started with the episode. Karen, I've got, a, I've got a bit of a treat for you, actually, to start this one. What do you reckon this is? Mm. That looks like a delicious loaf of bread. That is a, actually, I'll be honest with you, this smells fantastic. And I'm not bragging because I, I did make this. Um, yeah, so we've started this episode. We're going to talk about bread and sourdough. Um, I've never been a baker particularly, but I have to admit in the last couple of months, I've really gotten into, into sourdough. And this is actually the second loaf of your bread that I'm actually going to taste. And the oh. one I had yesterday was delicious. Aren't you lucky? Yeah. Um, yeah, I have to admit... This one's got that that good sourdough tang to it. I'm I'm starting to get better. My first loaf was absolutely atrocious, but um, I'm I'm slowly working. There, there's such an art and a lot of science behind what goes into making sourdough sourdough loaves, really. Absolutely. And what's exciting about this sourdough is that it actually has come from a starter, which was a gift and is called Mother. It was. So that might be a hint to our first guest uh, <laughs> on the podcast. For those of you that watched um, season, uh, was it 2017? That's right, yeah. Great British Bake Off. You might remember scientist uh, Yan Su. We actually went to go and speak to her for this episode and she very kindly sent me yeah, a sample of her now famous um, sourdough starter. So the, the way that sourdough works is you, you keep this culture of yeast alive um, and you feed it regularly with a bit of water and a bit of flour and it keeps bubbling away. And then when you're ready to make a loaf, you use this starter, you add to it a lot more flour and a lot more water, and that's got enough yeast in it, it's got enough activity in it that it will create the loaf, as opposed to adding like a packet mix of yeast or some dry yeast. Yeah, and the tangy tanginess actually comes from the bacteria which are growing in there. So you've got something like lactobacillus, mm -hmm. which is living, living there and producing a slightly acidic taste, and that's what gives the tang to this type of bread. It does mean that the, the starter absolutely stinks, but it... It stinks in a good way because there's so many things going on in there. You, like you said, you've got so much other bacteria that you wouldn't get in a dry packet mix that this is what really kind of makes the bread unique. So I've been, I've been working on that and uh, it takes a lot of commitment. Like sourdough takes about a day or two sometimes even to mature properly to, to get the, the dough even in a place where you can put it in the oven. Um, and fun fact is that today's recording session actually started a little bit later because we had to wait. <laughs> we were waiting for the bread to cook oh, uh, because yes. it's so temperamental. Yeah, you do get to know your dough. It sounds a little bit sad. <laughs> but um, 
I couldn't, I couldn't serve you a soggy loaf, you know? No, like, absolutely. It had to, so the knock that you heard right at the beginning there, listeners, that's how you know um, if your um, bread is in the oven and you take it out and you can't quite tell whether it's ready or not. You turn it over and you tap on the back. And if it starts to make a tapping sound as if it's a little bit hollow or like you're knocking on a door, that's how you know it's probably cooked through. Yeah, and that's what we were waiting for this morning. We were waiting for the knock. And it's well <laughs> worth it. <laughs> But that actually wasn't the reason that we went to go and see Jan, was it? No, absolutely not. No, because what we're interested in is pies. Mm. Um, and it's more specifically um, the pie equation. Because when Jan was on uh, the 2017 Bake Off, she actually mentioned the perfect pie equation. And the perfect pie equation was written by Dr. Eugenia Cheng. And uh, she's produced a whole paper on this looking at, uh, you know, how do you make the perfect mince pie? Oh, and I've been looking pie. back and you cook mince pies as well. You made some over oh, Christmas, did didn't you? Batch, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a few questions as we go through her paper, because I thought it'd be quite interesting to look at, you know, to look at pies and how do you make the perfect pie? Um, so her paper um, is actually talking about um, something called the frustrum. And she actually came up with an equation for the perfect pie. And I think, Emma, you should have a at saying the equation. <laughs> Right. Um, so I've got it in front of me. I'm going to try and read it out. Hmm. So it starts with, it, it's pi over the square root of three, um, <laughs> two brackets, and inside the inner brackets, a capital R plus a little r over two, first bracket, uh, cubed, <laughs> take, okay, minus r cubed, end of second bracket. Actually, I think that came out quite well. That was better than I expected. (laughs) Um, But obviously this is, is, again, not brilliant for the audio medium. So head on over to our Instagram account and we will have a beautifully written version of that equation for you to take a look at. Just in case you're interested, yeah. Yeah. Um, So the idea behind this is is to do all to do with cones and something, as I said, called the frustrum. So what I want you to do, listener, is to imagine... A lovely cornetto, maybe a nice mint That's cornetto. That's I can do. Yeah, got that in your head? Yep, love a Excellent. cornetto. Excellent. So unwrap your cornetto Mm-mm. and take a look at it. And you can see there's the cone. And then at the top, still carrying on the cone shape, you've got a little bit of ice cream at the top. Take a knife, slice off that ice cream off the top. Or eat it. Uh, yep, yeah, or eat it. No, you've got to slice it off the top if you want the shape. <laughs> oh, so we're going to okay. slice it off the top and we're left with the cone at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually the piece that we've sliced off at the top. That is a frustrum. Right. That shape is a frustrum. Mm-hmm. Now in mathematics, those of you who are into mathematics, nope. um, <laughs> if you want to find out the, the volume of a frustrum, what you have to do is take into account the two cones that are involved in that shape, creating that shape of the frustrum. So that's the initial cornetto shape before you take the ice cream off and then the cone that's left afterwards. So those two cone shapes. And actually, if you're baking a mince pie, let's take your Christmas mince pies that you made. Um, Ugly pies, I called them. (laughs) Not pretty, but tasted delicious. Yeah, they tasted great. They weren't lookers. They're not winning any competitions. Again, head on over to our Instagram account. Um, Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'll put up a picture of my hideous mince pies. (laughs) Um, but if you if you think about you're you're going to make some mince pies, um, you don't take a cone of pastry and then cut off the bottom of the cone. Absolutely not. And use that top part to make the outside that of the pastry case. Totally ridiculous. No. So to explain to us how you would create, you know, what what shapes you would use in terms of the pastry when you're making so, mince pie. So you roll out your short crust pastry, you get it to a nice even thickness, and then I use two separate circular. Um, shapes whether that's like a glass or a cup or an actual cutter and you have a larger circle and that fits in the base of the kind of muffin case tin 
And then once you've loaded in the mince, you put the smaller circle of pastry on top to close it up. Exactly. So this is what um, this is what this paper is all about, that as a baker, you want to find the volume of the frustrum from the radius at these two separate circles, right. not looking at the cone at the start. So what she's done is done a whole load of amazing mathematics through the paper, some of which is a little bit over my head. However, <laughs> she um, she actually comes up with a final equation where you can work out the volume of a mince pie um, using these circles. And the reason why this is important is obviously in order to get the perfect mince pie, you need to think about the volume in the centre and actually how much mince meat are you placing inside the pie to get that nice taste. So there's not too much pastry and there's not too much of the, you know, of the content in the centre mm -hmm. and you end up with the perfect mince pie. I... I confess, haven't read the entire thing. I've left that up to um, science teacher Karen <laughs> <laughs> to, to dissect that one for us. But but Yanni had read it, uh, and we went to go and speak to her about pies, and not just not just sweet pies. She actually even made us some savoury pies to meet with her. So she's already favourite podcast guest straight away. Absolutely, and they were delicious. I have oh, to gosh, say, oh gosh, they were great. So we're going to play a little clip from that now. It's in the Francis Crick Institute where Yanni works. Um, it is in the cafeteria, which is obviously very relevant and very topical for a, a podcast on food. Uh, but it does mean there is a little bit of background noise. So just bear with us. There's a few clankings and um, people wandering around back there. Yeah, if you have with the pies, I'm, I'm oh, well no, They too. look absolutely delicious, I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you've surpassed our expectations already. So talk us through them. What have you presented us okay, with? Okay, so these are... Um, uh, chicken katsu curry pies oh so, I hello so the one of the things i bake some of the things i bake are based on things that i can't get so if i want a pie i can buy a pie that's what most people say i can buy a pie that's true. but can you get a chicken curry pie and i do like my curries and even better if it's in a pie because it's handheld and you can take it anywhere so how do you prevent a pie from getting a soggy bottom you could probably if it's a if it's a deep deep well pie you could probably uh, blind bake first and then add it on top you can also make sure that the filling is well so mince pie is cooked already and the mm. mince meat is cooked already but if you were to say doing a meat pie make sure that filling's already cooked so you don't need a long length of time on the low heat because then you're just getting the and and also that the filling isn't too wet because one of the big criticisms this series is the fact that their pie fillings were too dry, so they'd overcompensated, removed, removed yeah, too much moisture. The fear of the soggy bottom has has covered, has, has has shadowed everything in their midst. But you're right. But you can also add moisture after the fact. So like pork pies, um, pork pie makers make a hole at the top, and then as the pie is cooling, they pour like a gelatin mixture on top to fill all the areas so it's both moist and actually as it cools down it solidifies so it doesn't soggy into the pie but also I personally if I'm making a hand raised pie I um, brush the outside with egg white to stop it from leaking because that can leakage can also create a dry pie and a soggy bottom but yeah just experiment and find your own pie nirvana so Dry pies, soggy bottoms, leakage and pie nirvana. Pie nirvana. I would get that on a T-shirt. <laughs> that's brilliant. You managed to sneak in soggy bottom into that interview. Yes. I know how proud you were of, uh, of yourself managing to get in a few bake-off innuendos. Yeah, definitely one of our bingo words. Um, and I have to admit, if we're talking about pie nirvana, we were two very happy um, pie eaters on the train home after this, weren't we? Oh, yes, oh. absolutely. Yeah. So one of the one of the kind of main reasons we also wanted to talk to her... Um, on this episode is of course not only is she a brilliant baker star of bake-off 
She's also a biomedical scientist. She combines the two kind of concepts of this episode, food and science. So we were really interested in, in how much science she actually uses in her baking. Does she consciously use you know, scientific theories and scientific understanding in her baking a little bit like that pie equation we talked about earlier? Yeah, do you find that you approach baking then from quite a scientific, back, like, do you look at it from quite a scientific perspective? Because when I cook, um, despite also having a science background, sort of, um, I frustrate people that I'm cooking with because I don't like following recipes and I like to do it from how I feel and how things look and feel when they get together. But do you approach things from like a much more methodical, look, I know how these ingredients work together, I know the processes, kind of I, point of view? Actually, I'm, a like, I'm probably like more like you. I, I do follow it to an extent. But also, I do like to experiment. It's like you said, I, I've ha- prior to uh, two years ago, I hadn't experimented with, uh, like, so it's quite nouveau, it's aquafaba. Okay. Theoretically, it should work just like an egg white, because egg whites is, is, is protein. So this is the uh, liquid from The liquid uh, from chickpeas, chickpeas isn't it? So, yeah. for instance, I can replace egg white with aquafaba, but I can't replace the sugar because I know that the sugar helps it crystallise if you use no if you use that low calorie sugar or the no sugar stuff it won't crystallise the same way so as long as you understand why things work and how things work you usually um, overcome certain problems with baking it's like if you're making something with sugar but you want it low sugar and it has nothing to do with the texture then you can usually do it so, like, for instance, if you're making a sweet pie crust, the sugar has no bearing on the texture. It's more like the butter and the fat and the flour. So you've got an element of emotion and an element of science in your baking. It has to be. Yeah. And a lot of it is from gut, like cooking. So I'm always also a home cook. It's not just about baking. It's gut and feeling and, and, and you know what, how things combine and taste and how they should look and how it should work. So we drifted back to pies almost a little bit there, but I cannot believe, Karen, that you got through that interview. We started talking about egg whites and you didn't say your favourite words, stiff peaks. No, and even better, voluminous stiff peaks. How, how, did you, how did you let that slip? I know that was a bit of a disaster and we only realised on the train on the way back, but luckily the delicious pies made up for the fact that I'd missed it. Well, I think you should make up for it now. Stiff peaks, egg whites, talk me through. Okay, so egg whites are mostly made of water and protein and it's the protein that's really key to getting the stiffest of your stiff peaks. <laughs> so this is this is a technique often used when you, know, you whip up egg whites, particularly for things like meringues. Absolutely, yeah. And um, basically what happens as you beat the egg whites, um, this the protein inside them is denaturing. So its structure's changing and you're also incorporating air bubbles into it. And um, that's the stage where it just looks kind of bubbly. But if you want it to form these stiff peaks, what needs to happen is the protein needs to cluster around the outside of these air bubbles and it forms kind of a mesh around the outside of the air bubble. And once you've got that mesh, then you've got the stiff peak. So that gives it the structure. Absolutely. So for this to occur, to be able to create this actual structure, um, we need to eliminate the yolk, don't we? And this is because the yolk is full of fat. That's right, yeah. So the fat, uh, when when mixed into this, will actually will pop the air bubbles, um, which are obviously essential to making this, this peak. And it does this by um, pushing the egg proteins actually away from the surface of the of the air bubbles, and that's what pops them. So if you're, if you're trying to whip up an egg and you've left the yolk in, you're not going to get stiff peaks. You're going to get a nice frothy kind of... Um, mixture perfect for scrambled eggs 
But not for meringues. No, and that can even be if you've got a greasy bowl. So you've got to make sure that there's, you know, there's literally no fat present at all to get the perfect, voluminous, stiff peak. Oh, well done. You look so proud of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on to the reasons behind why you've put four bars of chocolate in front of me and talk about some of our favourite foods. Yeah, and and when we think about food, we're often thinking about the smell of the food, the taste of the food, the texture... Um, But we don't often think about the sound that food makes. Not at all. Never crosses my mind. But it turns out that actually food acoustics are really pivotal to our enjoyment of food. So to find out a little bit more about this, we went to go and speak to Megan Povey, who is a professor of food physics at the University of Leeds School of Food Science and Nutrition. So um, my background actually is food chemistry. I did a food chemistry degree before I became a science teacher. Um, And I'm very interested in the fact that you are a food physicist. And we did quite a bit of food physics in my degree, but mostly about fluid dynamics and that kind of thing. And what interests me is the fact that you are actually looking at acoustics and the importance of that with food. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, we're interested in the way in which the sound food makes influences our feelings and thoughts about it and it became clear to me that if a food did not make a sound then it couldn't possibly be crispy or crunchy it, that that crispy crunchiness is directly related to the sounds it's making and so these sounds were associated with cracking in the food So at one extreme, you'll have the snap of chocolate, which is a single crack, or uh, lots and lots of cracks in, say, a Rice Krispie, and each crack has a sound pulse associated with it. And our brains are actually counting the rate those pulses arrive, and that is how we decide whether something is more or less crispy. The higher the rate of the pulses the more crispy we think something is and then there's a a tone associated with it so if there's no low notes we think of it as crispy if there are low notes as well then we think of it as crunchy so she's picked out two things there you know the, the crunch and the crackle as the two things that we you know want from food yeah because of that kind of crispiness and the and the and the crunchiness yeah and the reason behind that is because evolutionarily, if we were, for example, eating fruit or, you know, back in the hunter-gatherer days, you, you bite into an apple and when that apple is fresh and when it's, you know, ripe to be eaten and it's the best for you to eat, it's really crunchy. And you do you get that very distinctive crunching sound as, as crunching into an apple. And then, of course, marketing. It's used quite cleverly in marketing, this kind of sound and acoustics within the packaging of food. It's so it's so sneaky how they trick us, guys. So if you, for example, were looking at biscuit packets and you were looking at some high-end biscuits, they often have really nice kind of quite crackly and quite crunchy um, packaging. And that's because you're already interacting with these sounds and it's already getting this idea in your mind that it's going to be fresh and it's going to be good quality. So these brands know that acoustics are really important to how you determine your enjoyment of and the value you place in their food. Yeah, and if you take something like crisps, for example, mm. the crackliness of the packaging is mirroring the experience you're going to have with the crisps. So you're anticipating the taste of the crisps by opening the crisp packet and hearing a similar sound. Sneaky, isn't it? I can feel my mouth watering already. <laughs> so crisps aside, uh, Megan also had a lot of insight into why we enjoy chocolate so much. And we're also using sound now to modify 
food to modify the crystal structure, to, for example, improve the structure of chocolate so that it has even more gloss, even more snap, even nicer. <laughs> and how does, how does fat actually determine the snap that comes from chocolate? Well, believe it or not, most chocolate, a large proportion of it is actually liquid, and the fat crystals form a kind of skeleton network and form a space-filling structure, and that traps the oil. So, it, so the oil is flowing inside this structure, and it's that skeleton that makes the product solid. And then the melting of the crystal network cools you in the mouth. So, but the more fat there is in the chocolate, the bigger the cooling effect. It's the fat and the melting of the fat crystals that generates that cooling effect. So we, eating, eating is far more complex than people realize. And there'll be a whole series of sensory events associated with it, which we integrate into a single experience but we don't realise all the different things that are going on, like cooling, like the crunch, like the snap. Everything together makes that experience of eating chocolate. What's your favourite chocolate and why? OK, well, I, I, I do like the 90% and 100% chocolates. Um, if you go for 100% chocolate, you can buy different flavours from different parts of the world. They're quite expensive, and they also have a hit, which you can get just from smelling it. So one of the active substances in chocolate is theobromine, and that increases your heart rate. So even smelling chocolate will have a physiological effect in, in, a, in a strong chocolate. Uh, that's why you can't give chocolate to your cats and dogs, because means fatal to them and there are quite a lot of other what are called psychoactive substances in chocolate which are absolutely perfectly safe and I strongly recommend them. <laughs> so Professor Megan says it's okay for us to eat chocolate so let's eat some chocolate. Hand me the Cadbury's. Okay so you can have a go at the snap. So if should we open a packet each? Yeah. Okay. So what we've got here is we've got the cheap chocolate and we've got the more expensive chocolate so one of us has got one and one has got the other so packaging crinkly right. crispy packaging is that creating any anticipation <laughs> of what we're going to do and what we're going to do is snap chocolate one and then chocolate two um next to the microphone and see if you can guess which one's the more expensive chocolate because we'd expect the more expensive chocolate to have a better snap so let's see if it works so chocolate number one chocolate one Chocolate too. Mm. Oh, I didn't didn't hear a great deal of difference. One more time for clarification. Oh, actually, Ooh. they've both got quite nice snaps there. I've never really thought about chocolate having a snap before until we've no. done this experiment. I'm going to have to do yeah, that again because I quite like pictures. that. Ready? This is for those people who like sounds. Are you ready? <laughs> oh, there's Ooh, definitely a difference, isn't there? Slightly more high-pitched snap, I think. Yes. For, for Higher my, frequency. So, chocolate number one or chocolate number two? Which one was the more expensive? It was It was actually mine, wasn't it? It was um, chocolate number one, Cadbury's Bourneville. And mine was Tesco's own brand. I don't know which one I would have said had a better snap to it, though, to be honest. 
No, they're quite similar. Um, and what Professor Megan was telling us was that um, companies spend quite a lot of time working on the snap of the chocolate because they know that's important in terms of what we expect chocolate to sound like. And it helps um, in terms of flavour and how we appreciate the food. And the snap is determined by the lattice, isn't it? The lattice of the fat. Yeah. So when we were looking at the back of these two packets, instead of going on price, we also had a look at which one had a higher fat content because we would have assumed that the higher fat content would probably have provided a better snap. But our results have deemed inconclusive. Yes, because actually the more expensive uh, chocolate actually had a, a slightly lower fat content. But what was interesting about the cheaper chocolate was that the fat wasn't just cocoa solids. They'd actually added buttermilk to the, the slightly cheaper chocolate to obviously increase the fat content. But obviously that would be cheaper than having more of the cocoa solids in there to increase the fat content. Again, sneaky companies trying mm. to convince us that our products are great, just trying to make it sound like an expensive product without actually putting the, uh, the expensive ingredients in it. Yeah, which makes sense if you're, you know, if you're after a cheaper product with the same kind of snap, which presumably would have the same impact on, on you when you taste the food. I mean, I am more than happy to eat them all. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not the end of our experiments. No, so experiment number two. It's time to get your 90% and your 70% chocolates at the ready. Okay. Right, so these opening. I've got the 70%. I've got the 90 do you like dark chocolate? Are you a dark chocolate fan? I am a dark chocolate fan, yes, yeah. And I've actually tried, um, Megan was talking a little bit about the 100% chocolates, and I've actually tried 100% Ooh, chocolate. Gosh, what's that like? Um, and it's almost like, you know when you have a really, really good quality coffee versus yes. your everyday coffee, it's it's very much like that. Oh, but, okay. But now I've listened to, you know, to Megan talking about this, I'm really tempted to try it again, having that scientific knowledge in my head, which I didn't have when I first tried the 100% oh, chocolate. okay. Okay. Oh, so that, that was your seventy percent. I've got a. Hmm. Maybe a slight difference in the snap Possibly. there. Possibly. But the reason why we got this one is not for the snap, but actually for the melt. So um, should we should we both try the seventy percent first, and then see if we see experience an increase in cooling and smoothness when we then try the ninety percent? I think that makes sense. Okay. So if you're along with us, for you, along with us listeners. Okay. So seventy percent first of all. Off we go. definitely an even melt in the mouth there um, i am feeling the cooling sensation which i don't normally pay attention to but because i'm on the lookout for mm. it is very smooth yeah definitely smooth mm. and that nice bitter aftertaste as Maybe well just you a get bit a more for clarification yeah experiment again <laughs> in order to get the cooling effect you need to keep the chocolate in one place in your mouth mm. and not be chewing i think and then you can feel that kind of slight cooling effect it's you quite interesting to, yeah you need to let it melt you can't mm. crunch straight away so now we're going up to 90%. You can definitely taste that that's got higher cocoa solid levels, can't you? But I, I have to say much I'm more not, bitter. not noticing the cooling effect so much with that one. Me either. Mm. So there we go. Practical application of science there. Now we can't talk about chocolate and not talk about ganache. Yes, let's stop snacking now. Let's wipe that chocolate off from around our faces. Let's bring it back to baking. Let's get some technical skills in this tent. Yeah, and we're thinking about that lovely, you know, that lovely mirror finish that you get on the top of the cake. We're thinking about the dribbling down the side of the cake, which seems to be the fashion Ooh, at the moment. Dribbling, horrible. <laughs> I was going with like melting. Oh, were you? No, no, no. This this kind of dribbling, you know, you pour it over the top and you get that dribbling look down kind the side of, like of the cake. Kind of like candle wax, isn't it? <laughs> 
Only to really taste it. Much nicer. <laughs> much, much, much nicer, of course. So the question is, you know, how do you make this ganache without it separating? And how do you get that lovely sheen on the surface of the cake? I bet, Karen, that there is a lot of science that goes into this. Do you know what? You're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> so what you do is you start off, first of all, with your double cream. And you heat that until it's just bubbling. Okay. And the reason why you do that is because you want to scorch the protein a little bit just to give it a bit of flavour. But if you boil it, then what it will do is destabilise the fat globules and then you'll end up with it splitting. Nobody wants a split ganache. No. Ganache and globule. Oh, two of your favourite words words you managed to squeeze in there. Well done. Um, So you've got this double cream um, and then what you need to do is melt the chocolate into the double cream. Okay. And it works much better if you grate it. And what that does is increase the surface area and that means that it will melt much faster. Lovely. Mm. Um, And then this is the important bit. So the last stage basically is to beat these two together and that creates the emulsion. So you're emulsifying the mixture and that's what generates that nice sheen. Um, And an emulsion is a mixture of two or more liquids. So one liquid is dispersed within the other. And and that's what produces your nice emulsion and your ganache. Oh, very nice. I'll uh, I'll take your advice next time I'm baking a fancy cake. Now, ganache is quite hard to get right, isn't it? It's notoriously tricky. Yeah, I mean, but it always looks really, really impressive. So it's worth the hard work. Yeah, my mum makes wedding cakes and event cakes. And she went on a course to make ganache recently. And oh, my gosh. Mm. It does look, it just looks so terribly professional. I'll put a, I'll put a picture on the Instagram for, for listeners to go and have a look at my mum's cake. Yes, that'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you, can you bake? Are you a good cake baker? Well, embarrassingly for someone who did A-level home economics, I have to say, I can't bake. My oh. basic cakes are not the world's greatest. I oh, can Karen. never seem to get a good rise oh. <laughs> on oh. my cake. Oh. Um, and, that, and that is a problem for me. Yeah. Well, they say that's quite a common problem, you know, so we decided to do a little bit of research to bring in some science and find out how to bake the perfect cake. Yeah, and it turns out there's quite a lot of reasons why my cakes don't rise. So potentially I'm doing all of these mistakes, but we'll we'll see. What's your cake of choice? Um, if you had to bake a cake, if I forced I mean, you to bake a cake? I have to say I am a big fan of date and walnut. Oh, mm. nice. Yeah, but um, I haven't really had, had a go at baking one, which is a little bit bizarre. But well, date and walnut, lovely. Well, you better bring one to the next episode, I think. <laughs> Do you think so? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, I've got to ask, mm-hmm. what's your creaming technique like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because obviously that is the first stage of making your basic Victoria sponge is yeah, creaming. You get it. All the recipes say it, cream together, the butter and the and the sugar yeah and and actually it turns out scientifically if you don't get that right then you're not going to get enough air in the cake and that's potentially why it doesn't rise properly oh okay so so when you incorporate these gas bubbles into the the sugar and the butter by vigorous creaming (laughs) um what happens is the these air bubbles are kind of on the surface of the sugar crystals and this is one of the reasons why you use caster sugar instead of granulated sugar because caster sugar um the crystals are much smaller so that means, you know, overall, there's a bigger surface area for these bubbles to form at. So you end up end up with more bubbles. Um, and then as you're creaming, um, the bubbles are encased in a layer of fat. And that's what creates that foam. And you'll see the color change from a darker yellow into a very, very pale yellow. But if you don't cream it enough, then not enough air is incorporated. And therefore, you get a poor rise on the cake. 
This is quite tiresome work as well, though, isn't it? So actually, funnily enough, a, a really early cookbook, uh, which was published in 1857, suggested that you got one, one got one's manservant to do the creaming. Yeah, well, all creaming should be done by a manservant, I think. Oh, Karen. <laughs> That's it. I'm not coming round to bake with you ever. <laughs> oh, so, th- so the next reason why I'm not getting a rise potentially in my cakes is about the beating egg. So if you've got to beat the egg enough to be able to get air into, into that mixture as well. And when you add the egg to this creamed mixture, and um, what it does is it stops the fat covered air bubbles from collapsing. Uh-huh. And that helps to form an extra layer around each bubble. And that helps also provide most of the liquid to the cake as well. So the eggs are actually quite crucial. Ah, well, you don't want a dry cake, do you? No. Now, once you've made your mixture, there are three more stages to baking your cake. Yeah. You might think there's just one, shove it in the oven, (laughs) but no. So these three stages are rising, setting and browning. And you don't really have to get involved in these. These all happen in the oven, but you've Mm -hmm. got to make sure the environment is ready for this cake to do these things. So the first one, the rising, is all down to the air bubbles. So you've done your, your creaming and your beating, and there's mm-hmm. loads of air bubbles in your mixture. And as soon as you put them in the, the heated environment of the oven, they expand, you know, they're gas. Gas expands when it heats up. Mm-hmm. And the water in the, uh, or any of the liquid kind of in the cake also turns to steam, which adds even more rise to the cake mixture. Yeah, so that's causing the, you know, these pockets within the cake to become larger mm. and creating the rise, yeah. That's what gets you a nice fluffy cake. Mm. So the next stage is setting. This is when it starts to solidify. So the proteins that we've talked about coming in from the egg, they start to denature, they unwind and they form this kind of gel. The starch that you find in the flour also starts to absorb all the water in the mixture and again swells and it forms another kind of gel. This is also the point where the gluten starts to lose its elasticity. So as all of this happens, the cake starts to solidify and it sets in its shape. Yeah. And the third and final stage, browning. This is what happens when the surface starts to dry out. Yeah, and then what's quite interesting is this this browning process is caused by something called the Maillard reaction. Oh, yeah. And this is a chemical reaction happening between the amino acids in the protein and the sugar, and that's what gives this lovely flavour of browned food. So it's not just with cakes but other foods that you brown. So all of this happens at temperatures above 140 degrees Celsius. Um, if you go much higher, then what happens is you get caramelisation instead. And okay. that's, that happens with the sugar. So it causes that kind of caramelisation of the sugars. And if you cook something like onions, so you learn that lovely smell that you get with onions. But mm. if you cook them perfectly, you can actually get them to taste quite sweet because yes. you can caramelise the sugars inside them. And that gives something called an umami taste. Okay. Right. Hold your horses. Yeah. What is an umami taste? And am I terribly uncultured for not knowing what that is? Well, you were taught probably at primary school that there were maybe four different um, tastes that you might get in the mouth. Yeah, so sweet, salty, sour and bitter. That's right. Yeah, well, actually, there are five. So umami. <laughs> yes, there's five things. Yeah. So umami is actually the fifth flavor or the fifth taste oh, okay um and it's called umami because it was discovered in japan back in the early 1900s and it means a kind of pleasant savory flavor oh that's kind of the meaning of the word um yeah so your taste buds can actually detect umami and on that note now that i'm really hungry that's about all we've got time for for our first episode yeah and i think we need to have a look at the list of words and see how many you spotted absolutely so Go here on. they are so Ganache. Mm. Uh, we managed to slip soggy bottom in there Absolutely. earlier on in the episode and moist. Mm-hmm. 
a little bit of leakage from those pies. And of course, voluminous stiff peaks. Uh-huh. It's my favourite. Goodness me. Uh, a little bit later <laughs> on, a creamy. Yep. Um, we've got baking tent, rise and beating. We have. That's quite a few. I'm quite pleased with that. Now, we'll be back next week with another episode of Small Screen Science. But until then, you can keep in touch with us and see all of the things that we've talked about in this episode on our social media. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to go to Instagram, we are... We are at Small Screen Sci Pod. Twitter, at Small Screen Sci. Email, smallscreensci at gmail.com. And Facebook, Small Screen Science Podcast. And obviously, if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe. Leave us a nice five-star review and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.